0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast. This week, when did Boris become the nation's nanny? Plus, is the era of the angry chef over? And finally, cricket. What does the new tournament, the 100, mean for the sport? First up. In The Spectator's cover story this week, our editor Fraser Nelson takes our former editor and current Prime Minister Boris Johnson to task over his apparent abandonment of liberalism, particularly when it comes to vaccine passports, sugar taxes and high spending. Fraser joins me now along with Melanie Phillips, who, after living quite comfortably with vaccine passports in Israel, can't see what Fraser's so worried about. Fraser, it's Freedom Day supposedly coming up, but in your cover piece this week you describe it as a rather Orwellian term and say that it's freedom for some but not all. What exactly do you mean by that?
1: What I mean is vaccine passports, as one of the caveats to the Freedom Day Announcements: we were told that companies are going to be encouraged to demand that their customers will show proof of vaccine certification. So theatres, for example, might not let you buy a ticket unless you've got proof of vaccination. And the same might be true for sports venues, for, for nightclubs. In fact, the government is saying that it's encouraging these institutions to ask for vaccine passports. Now, this would be quite a big change in our society. And I go back to the great debate over ID cards in 2004. Tony Blair wanted to bring them in. He was saying times have changed, we've got the technology, we have a terrorist threat, and in order for everybody to live together more coherently, it's time to give people ID cards, as you have in so many other countries. It was Boris Johnson who made the most eloquent and principled opposition to this in the pages of The Spectator and Elsewhere saying that, no, this is about the relationship between the individual and the state. We live in a country where we are not a papers-please society. You are at liberty to go where you want without having to prove to anybody that you are who you say you are, subject to basic um, caveats, for example, you need to be prove your rating your if you're going to go to drink. But we do not need to prove identity. Now, vaccine passports would change that. Not only would you have to prove identity, but you'd have to share your immunological status. So you need to be like a bio ID card. Now, the other problem I've got with this, I've got so many problems with this, but to me, the biggest problem, one which I think got, thought should end all discussion about this, is the massive gap in ethnicity. Now, um, not everybody's been offered the jab yet, but the over 50s have. Quite, for quite a while. Amongst the over 50s, 6% of whites are unvaccinated, but 31% of blacks are unvaccinated. Now that is a massive gap. The reasons for this are quite complicated. You can see the similar ethnicity gap in vaccines worldwide, basically to do with whether you trust authority. Black Brits are less likely to have a driving license, for example, than white Brits. And this comes down to, again, the arguments over ID when you come to vote. There are some people who are not in the habit of having ID cards, some people who will never take a vaccine ID card, some people who would never like to take a vaccine. Do they have the right to participate in a free and open society? And up until now, there's never been any question. Yes, we do. But the introduction of vaccine cards would create a new precedent that freedom isn't going to be something that's all of our rights, it's going to be something that the government will guarantee to some people on certain conditions. And I've got a pretty big problem with that.
0: Melanie, you're speaking to us from Israel, a country which has brought in vaccine passports, although as Fraser says in his piece, they have now seemed to have sort of dropped them. Do they seem to have divided society as much as Fraser argues that they will?
2: No, Israel is a very different society from Britain. Incidentally, the COVID passport is making what hey Fraser would be horrified to find as a triumphant comeback. Because Israel now has a, an alarming rise in uh, infection from COVID, it is considering resuming the passport. The The point about the Israeli green passport, the proof of vaccination, is that when it was introduced, a, a very large number of young people who had hitherto assumed that they were immune to the disease and were n- were not going to get vaccinated... Suddenly rushed off to get vaccinated in order to be able to have access to the things they wanted to have access to. And as a result, Israel managed to achieve an extraordinary rate of vaccination. And as a result, the COVID passport almost became obsolete as soon as it was introduced. But now, with the rate of infection going through the roof again, they're thinking of reintroducing it. The fact is that Israel is a society which, although divided in many important ways, nevertheless assumes that the government, which it holds in great contempt, nevertheless has the welfare of its citizens at heart. It doesn't assume that it's out to destroy their liberty. And consequently, it, it has ID cards as a matter of security. And so it was Easier for Israel to introduce the COVID passport in those sort of circumstances. But I think that Fraser's argument uh, takes this really beyond the level I think that it is reasonable to have concerns about the extension of government powers over all our lives, because the COVID passport. The proof of vaccination is not the same as an ID card. It is a much more limited in scope. It simply is a proof or a guarantee that you've had a vaccination. Now, I think that if you are running an institution or uh, administering a service, I think it's very reasonable to think that you will require from people proof that they're not going to harm anybody else, which is the proof of their vaccination. I mean, you know, freedom, liberty is a precious commodity. But in Britain, as elsewhere, nobody ever really seriously argues that we should all have the freedom to injure others. Fraser talks about freedom being compromised, the freedom of people who are suffering from poor immunity or various diseases, which is actually many, many millions of people, their freedom is going to be compromised on July the 19th, when people are allegedly going to be free to roam around and possibly infect them. So personally, I think that the vaccination certificate is a perfectly reasonable means of trying to ensure people's security. Now, uh, certainly you know uh, no no question id cards are int- intensely controversial in britain but this idea that they would introduce something foreign in the sense of enabling authority to establish one's identity ignores the fact that that facility exists now there are many circumstances in britain where we're asked to produce driving license or national insurance number certainly the latter uh, will enable authority to find out virtually everything that could be found out from an identity card so i think that this fear although i think well, i think it's very prudent to be concerned about, as it were, mission creep, and to be concerned that uh, there should be no erosion of liberty any more than is absolutely necessary. And I think that sort of vigilance is very appropriate. But I think there is a point at which this uh, this is taken too far. As for the ethnicity point, Yes, there are groups in Britain who are very resistant to being vaccinated. But those groups are going to be people who eventually, I think it will be shown, if they continue not to be vaccinated, are going to bear the brunt of death and disease. Now, how can anyone really seriously suggest that that is a good alternative? I'm sure Fraser's not suggesting that. But I mean, I think that is the difficult balance that we're all now facing.
1: Two things. First of all, I mean, Melanie's argument would perhaps be more persuasive if being vaccinated did prove that you weren't a threat to others. It's a proof of no such thing. If you've been double vaccinated, there is still a significant chance, I think 20% chance perhaps higher, that you can still get the disease. You can still get and pass on COVID if you've had the jab. If you look at the the Zoe data right now, they show you that the unvaccinated, the number of people COVID is going down. The rise is amongst those who've already been jabbed. So the, the idea that being double jabbed means that you're not a threat doesn't, I'm afraid to say, hold then you've got the fact that ninety percent of adults already have antibodies in this country so really would you need to have such a big system when, when nine out of ten people are already quite safe and the other thing about uh, about the ethnic minorities to me this is to I really uh, again uh, i, I, I I just can't believe we're about to go through with the system where if you impose if I read today that there are theatres that there are bars and restaurants already considering vaccine ID cards if you demand these things and you will whiten up every single one of those establishments. Is that really what you want? A Wembley, where there is more diversity on the pitch, than off the pitch. And there are lots of reasons why um, people with ethnic minorities, um, Melanie says they'll be bearing the brunt of a disease. Well, that is their choice. They can choose to take the chances with COVID. A lot of young people, for example, would rather take the chances of getting the virus than getting the vaccine. Uh, the, the younger you are, the um, more in the balance of that decision comes. Now, that's not a decision i I would make, I, I'd be perfectly happy but with vaccines, I've got no problem with them at all, but there are a great many people who do have a problem with vaccines, who would rather run the risk, and that ought to be their body, their choice. I'm thinking specifically, I've got a colleague of mine, who um, here in the Spectator, who does not want to be vaccinated at all. Now, am I going to be asked, fairly soon, to say to her, no jab, no job? Am I going to have to go to her to say, if you will not get vaccinated in ways that would go against your conscience, or whatever her rationale is, it's not my business to ask, then you will no longer have a job in the spectator. To me, this isn't a small thing. This isn't technocratic. This is a major change in our balance of liberties and in the right people have got to make their own individual choices about their bodies. In a Britain where more people are getting the vaccine than almost anywhere else in the world, I don't see why we need to go down this authoritarian route.
0: Melanie, the broader point that Fraser makes in his piece is he looks at whether COVID has killed off Boris Johnson's liberalism, and then he looks at whether the pandemic has shaken faith in liberal democracy around the world. Do you think it has? Um, uh, b-
2: before I answer that, I just want to cor- correct a couple of points or make a and an, pr- pr- produce an opinion which is contrary to what Fraser has just said. While it's absolutely correct, That people who have been double vaccinated even can still get the disease and pass it on. And indeed, a number of people who are being infected and being hospitalized have been double vaccinated. The vast majority of people, certainly in Israel, where I am, who are uh, being admitted to hospital uh, with this uh, uh, Delta variant are people who've not been vaccinated. And I believe that's the case in other countries too. And even though a proportion can still pass it on, there is absolutely no question but that if you've been double vaccinated, the chances of your either getting the disease or passing it on are enormously reduced. And the point about, you know, I mean Fraser makes a very fair point about you know what you do with this uh, dilemma being that might possibly be posed by employees for example who uh, for whatever reason don't want to be vaccinated and of course that would be a very difficult situation no question that it would be divisive and all the rest of it but you know employers have a duty to their other employees and you know is it really to be argued that an employer should just be indifferent to the fact that somebody is coming in who might have have a much greater chance of infecting or infecting others.
1: And where does the argument stop them, Melanie? What about a flu jab? Should I be firing people who don't get a flu jab from the same crisis?
2: No, because the comparison between flu and COVID is absurd. Uh, there is simply no comparison. Uh, flu is... What, the, the, uh, they, they, uh, both, they both COVID-
1: kill thousands of people, and amongst the age group that work in no, the expectation, no, they've got similar no, rates sort of...
2: No, COVID is fantastically more infectious, first of all, and causes long-lasting damage in a way that flu doesn't. Sure, flu is a killer, yes. but not on the 20, same 000 scale as COVID would be. I don't, I don't see why your dramatic. argument
1: is not applicable to people who won't take a flu vaccine. Everything you've said is exactly applicable. Why shouldn't we be banning people who have the flu vaccines from restaurants? Why shouldn't I be firing people who haven't had a flu vaccine from because, this location? Because, as I've
2: just said, flu is infinitely less dangerous to the vast majority of people.
1: Not infinitely. Both in
2: terms of instant death, as it were, and in terms of long long-standing disease, which we are only now beginning to understand is affecting many people who present originally with very light symptoms. But to answer the question that was posed just now, uh, whether this poses a kind of threat to liberal democracy, no, I don't think it does. I think that if a democracy, if a society has, as Britain does, very very strong roots in an ethos of liberty and democracy I don't think it's going to be eroded by this. It will be eroded if things change in society. I'm much more concerned about the threat to both liberty and democracy from the agenda of identity politics, uh, which is causing people to lose their jobs, to lose their reputations, to have to... I mean, we we are living through, in Britain and other countries in the West, a really totalitarian system of of thought control and uh, attempts to to impose a sort of almost sort of moral purity ethic on people. I mean, to me, that is absolutely a threat, which is not just a hypothetical threat. It's here now. Now, undoubtedly, there is a threat of mission creep, as I said before, from this pandemic. We know that great emergencies do cause control over people's lives, the two world wars were a good example of this, uh, where you had a society that, uh, certainly after the First World War, you know that's why the welfare state suddenly turned up, as it were, and certainly uh, instituted much more so after the Second World War, because you know, governments assumed control over people's lives that wasn't then turned back again. And one can, depending on one's political position, one can either lament that or embrace it. But the fact is that that is a tendency. And I think if one is alarmed by that, then I think one is, you know, entitled to be extremely vigilant, so that it doesn't overstep the bounds. And, and there will be always be arguments about about where those boundaries should be drawn. But in itself, I don't think that what we're seeing so far is a cause for great, great concern. What is a great con- cause of great concern is, of course, to my view, the fact that the progress of this virus is such that it is requiring among governments that are trying to be responsible and stop the uncontrollable loss of life and and serious disease it's causing a continuation of restrictions that we all would have hoped would have gone by now or long ago and we can all see that this could go on for some time but in my view you know the alternative, to me, is as unconscionable as it always was. The alternative being, well, just let it rip and, you know, let everybody take their, take their chances. I don't think that's a responsible or moral thing to do. So I think that the dilemma that faces responsible governments remains as it always was. And it's a very difficult dilemma to finesse.
1: I'd be more understanding of this if the government, for example, had honestly made the case for vaccine passports. It hasn't. We were repeatedly told that they wouldn't happen. Michael Gove told us back in December that he wasn't planning... Vaccine passports, he didn't know anybody else who was. Nadeem Zahawi, the vaccine minister, said they were a terrible idea. Number 10 said they would be discriminatory. At no point, at no point, has anybody stood up in the House of Commons and made the case that Melanie's making there. At no point have we had a parliamentary debate on this. At no point have we had a vote on this. Now, Melanie and I differ as to how big a change this is in our society. But what I say in my cover piece is, at the very least... The country deserves an explanation, the country needs a debate, and Parliament needs to vote about uh, whether we want to go down this road. Uh, because I, I, I really do believe, I disagree with Melanie, that if you apply this logic for, for, for COVID, you can apply it for all sorts of respiratory diseases. Um, should you allow, for example, unvaccinated children to attend school? Might they present as much of a threat to their classmates, as Melanie says that my unvaccinated colleague presents a threat to her? colleagues. The logical, the road is very clear. If we accept vaccine passports in this situation right now, it opens a door to a whole bunch of other stuff. And my problem is these are being pushed through under emergency powers as government is still, even now, hoarding emergency powers and not the result of democratic debate, which you would expect in a country like Britain.
2: I agree with much of that. I mean, I think that uh, they should have been exposed to much more debate and they should be now exposed to much more debate. Uh, There is an argument to say, well, you know, the government had to act fast and there wasn't time for debate. Well, maybe at some points in this emergency, that was the case, but it's not the case now. And I entirely agree. This should be voted on by members of parliament. Otherwise, the risk of division, social division uh, becomes uh, very much greater. So I do agree with that.
0: Thank you, Fraser and Melanie. Next up, ever since Kitchen Confidential lifted the lid on the laddie macho environment of the professional kitchen, we have as a society somewhat romanticised the idea of the aggressive but genius chef. But is it time to retire that cliché? That's the question Olivia Potts asks in this week's Spectator. And she joins me now, along with the chef and owner of Darjeeling Express, Asma Khan. Livvy, you start your piece this week talking about reports about practices in the Kitchen Group, the set of restaurants owned by the celebrity chef Tom Kitchen. Can you run us through briefly what's alleged to have happened there?
3: Yeah, there have been allegations from ex-employees of the Kitchen Group that span a range of claims of abuse within the Kitchen So, some involve lack of breaks, lack of food or drink being provided during long shifts. Um, Some are more specific and talk about, there are are allegations of burning of staff with hoosed up oven trays and there have also been suggestions of sexual harassment. So, following those allegations, there have been two members of staff that have been suspended uh, pending investigation. And um, Tom Kitchen has also released a statement saying that the standards of the restaurant employment atmosphere have to match those of the food they're producing.
0: Asma, do you think this story is typical of the restaurant industry? Well, I
4: I wouldn't want to think that it is typical, but unfortunately, it is not so unusual. And uh, the kind of uh, statement that was made after the allegations came out really reflects that, that culture where it was... The justification was that because the standard of a top restaurant was so grueling, that kind of justified why, you know, staff were being abused. Not at all. I think the standard on my restaurant is very high of the food and service. No one shouts and screams and no one wants anyone in my kitchen. So the fact that this has continued for so long, it's because they have been allowed to have too much of self-regulation, you know, and this is about, you know, patting each other on the back saying, yeah, yeah, it's a very tough life. You're not in, You're not fighting Mortal Kombat video game. You're actually just running a business. You're cooking food. And if you're unable to deal with the heat and the pressure,
0: you should leave the kitchen. That's not the place for you. Livy, why do you think this concept of the sort of bad boy chef is is still so popular within within the sort of culture surrounding restaurants?
3: Uh, I think a lot of the chefs who sort of still embody that image grew up looking at the likes of Marco Pierre White and to an extent Gordon Ramsay and also, you know, in, in America, people like Anthony Bourdain. Before he died, Bourdain spoke candidly about how he never intended his... Memoir Kitchen Confidential to be some kind of aspirational tale for upcoming chefs and that that really it was a description of quite a bad working atmosphere but that's not how it's been taken. These guys cooking in grueling conditions and treating their staff badly has become aspirational because it's as much about their sort of work hard play hard image as it is about the food that they are producing and that if, you know, if you grow up with something, if it's formative to you, then it's quite hard to shake. And I think, I think we are sort of looking at the next generation of chefs in the kitchen who have now ascended to, to head chef or or something just below there. And it's, it's part of a cycle and it, it's, it's a difficult cycle to break.
0: Hasma, am I right in thinking that you think that chefs who are abusive towards their staff should have their Michelin stars removed? Yes, because
4: there's no, you need to hit them where it hurts. Because the thing is that this cycle of violence and aggression in the kitchen, there is no other way to break it. Because the thing is that the apologists are lying, standing in a line and their silence is deafening. Because when I was criticizing all of this, not a single chef, male or female spoke up. So when there is this complete conspiracy of silence and there is no attempt to try and change things, you need to actually use what has politically always been used. The suffragettes have used it. We have used it against apartheid. Wherever there has been oppression and injustice, people have used other means, civil means of challenging it. So there has to be sanctions of some sort. Sanctions work. It forces people to act differently. It forces you to rethink. It's not the nicest thing to do to an industry which I'm part of. But when this industry is so plagued and absolutely diseased, we need a cure for it And we seem not to be able to accept that there is a problem. So taking away their glory, which is their Michelin star, the Michelin star is given. The chef is the one who goes around parading their Michelin status. At least let's remove that so that they can actually realize that they're humble, that all they're doing is cooking food. At the top of it, they are leaders. They're responsible to nurture and protect their team and look after their women, not attack them.
0: Livia, it's noticeable in your piece that it does seem to be mainly male chefs who are abusive and then you talk a bit about how it's it's women who seem to be, to be kind of leaving the industry as a result. Is this a sort of problem of, of sexism?
3: Yeah, I think it's massively a problem of sexism and I think there are two parts to it. I think first of all we can see that there are major kitchens run by women that do not have this problem. I mean, asthma's is, is a very obvious example sitting in front of us, but you know, if you look at Spring uh, by Sky Gingle, if you look at River Cafe, if you look at places like Wild By Tart, you know, there, there are female led restaurants that just don't seem to encounter this problem at all. And that's not to say that there aren't restaurants run by men, which, which are run well, but it does seem to be something that runs alongside machismo. And the the second side of that is that it can mean that for for up-and-coming women chefs, they either don't enjoy that sort of sexist, aggressive atmosphere and leave the kitchen, which is, is we've got a massive problem of retention rate of women in kitchens, or it means that they have to be seen to be able, and I'm using huge inverted commas when I say this, They have to be able to take a joke. They have to be one of the boys. They have to be able to deal with the pressures of the kitchen in the same way that the men are. And all that is doing is perpetuating this cycle of aggression and bullying. It's just spreading it across the gender. But I I think the main problem is that we are finding that that women who enter the industry don't want to stay in it because the atmosphere is so toxic.
0: Asma, just to slightly flip that question around, Have you ever worked for or encountered a sort of female chef who is just as aggressive as some of the male chefs that Livy talks about?
4: Well, I, I have heard, and I, and you know, there but there are very few. I have heard, you know, uh, because of my reputation as you know a female founder of an all-female kitchen, I've always spoken up for years. This is not new. So I've been speaking up about this for years. So whenever there's been issues about any you know, chefs, even chefs you know, making derogatory comments about pregnant women, any of this, I've always spoken up because I'm unafraid. The big difference is that I don't owe anything to anyone. Female chefs who owe their success and their early years and the pathways that were cleared for them by male chefs tend to keep quiet. I have heard about a lot of women chefs who are a bit tough, but they are very, very few compared to male chefs. And I, you know, it is difficult to understand why that may be happening. There's also this kind of thing of seeing success in male terms in the industry. So often, you know, because people working in kitchens are used to being disciplined in a certain way, sometimes people might feel that they're forced into kind of using strong language, you know, barking orders, because that's how they get the work done. It, it is very deep rooted, the rot in kitchens, Starting from the top to the very bottom, this kind of oppression and hierarchical, toxic culture of pushing the person below you really hard to try and get them to work harder and faster has really infected the entire kitchen, the entire brigade.
0: Just finally, Livy, you you finish your piece talking about the huge staff shortages in hospitality at the moment. And and you say that workers are in demand, which means they have more choice as to where they want to work. Do you think that's going to change the industry?
3: I don't think it can alone change the industry. I think it needs a multi-pronged approach. I I mean, I'm actually quite with asthma when it comes to sanctions. I don't think we should be lauding chefs or restaurants where we know categorically that there are major issues with the way they treat their employees. I also, in the piece, spoke to, to Ravneet Gill, who, as well as being a pastry chef, runs Counter Talker, a recruitment platform. It only runs job ads for businesses that they know to be responsible employers. And I think, you know, the message is getting out there. And we have different tools now to protect those already in the industry and going into the industry. But no one approach is going to work. We have to be vocal. We have to be as consumers, making sure that we are not supporting the restaurants that we know to be difficult. And as uh, those of us either within the industry or writing about the industry, we have to be actively calling out so that consumers know which those are. I hope with a combination of those approaches, we can see real change and that workers will know their choices and will be able to gravitate towards good employees, good workplaces and and healthy work relationships. But it, it needs, it, it needs action from a number of different sides.
0: And Asma, to finish on, do you have people coming to work for you because your restaurant is known to be a good working environment?
4: Yes, I do. And I do have a lot of women. And unfortunately, I have a you know, disproportionate number of pastry chefs who come. But because, you know, I'm, I'm a traditional Indian chef, we don't bake anything. We use our oven to keep saucepans and frying pans because we don't. I can never hire them. And it breaks my heart. And, you know, they say, you know, we'll do anything, you know, we'll clean folks. You know, we just want to be somewhere where we feel safe. And I can't hire all of them, but it is heartbreaking. And it is a serious issue because a lot of these women who have come and spoken to me disappear. They leave the industry, we are hemorrhaging, we are losing talented, you know, compassionate. Our future leaders, our future culinary stars, the women are going, they're leaving the industry, and this is our greatest loss. That it is really literally the kind of coming, I don't want to use the word lightly, but you know, the very psychotic kind of you know, behavior of male chefs, it is breeding more of these types because they're the ones who are still staying on because they can take it, they take the pain and then they give the pain when they're in position power. And we are losing the women, we're losing compassionate strong leaders and talented women. And I think this is going to be a serious issue and, you know, in my lifetime, I will see change. In my lifetime, I want to stand on the corners and applaud women's stars. I want to see them surpass everything I've done and be excellent in everything. You know, the future leaders are there, you know, and, but I need to do every day. I want to make some difference. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak uh, for your podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Liv Nazma, thank you very much. And finally, cricket is getting a makeover. Next week, a brand new tournament, The Hundred, begins, which is an attempt by the England and Wales Cricket Board to bring in a new, young, and more diverse crowd. Is this a flash in the pan or something that may change the sport forever? To discuss, I'm joined by Freddie Wild, an analyst for Crickfist, and the legendary sports journalist, Henry Blofeld. It's fair to say that in his piece for The Spectator this week, Michael Henderson is not a fan of the new cricket tournament, The Hundred. Freddie, for listeners who might not know about it, can you just briefly explain what is The 100?
5: Yeah, essentially The 100 is a new cricket tournament which is launching next week. It's going to be played between eight city-based teams, two of them in London and then the other six dotted around the country. And it's played across a format of 100 balls, counting down from 100 down to zero. And it's not based around six ball overs as traditionally is the case it's based around what is five ball overs instead so essentially the ECB have sort of come up with a new format of cricket and it's designed essentially to breathe fresh life into the sport.
0: Henry you are going to the first men's game in the hundred are you looking forward to it or are you slightly apprehensive?
6: Yes I am I mean I slightly would disagree that trying to invent something to bring the sport to life, you might say. What they're trying to do blatantly is raise more money. And you see, England invented T20. They then lost control of it. And it was uh, produced wonderfully by India. The IPL uh, is fantastic. It's pure Bollywood. It's not really cricket. But then T20 isn't essentially cricket. I mean, it, it what I call cricket anyway. And uh, the Australian, their the, the, the one day competition has been wonderfully successful too. We lost control of it. And I think uh, the invention of the 100, we're attempting to play catch up. And I just don't think we need one more competition. I don't wish that the 100 to fail. I wish it every success in the world. I hope it does uh, raise all the money. But I just doubt that the format of everything of cricket in this country can stand one more competition under yet more rules. And however much they may think they've simplified the rules, I think they've made them very complicated. In fact, it's going to take us all an awful long time to get used to the new rules. And I think anyone, however much they may dislike cricket, again, to be familiar with such terms as wickets and overs, which are not being allowed. This is only my opinion. I'm an old fart, of course I am at my age. I understand that. I understand lots of people much younger than me are going to be much more optimistic about it. But I just don't see it having a great staying power. As I say, I hope I'm wrong. It's been designed as a financial palliative and I wish it every success in the world. But I have my doubts.
0: Freddie, are you feeling more optimistic about the hundred?
5: Um, yeah, I am. I think, well, f- firstly, I think it's important to, to draw attention, as, as Henry has done there, that this tournament isn't for him. It's not for me. The point of the the entire tournament is to attract the interest of people who are not currently into cricket. And I think that there's a lot of research that's gone into that, uh, sort of to suggest the ECB need to do something. A lot of people who are uh, critical of the 100 are saying that it's a big risk for the English game to undertake something like this to throw a lot of money at a tournament um, that they would argue is maybe not needed. The ECB, and I think myself as well, would argue that actually the greater risk lies in not doing anything at all. A lot of the ECB research has drawn attention to things such as the fact that 94% of tickets uh, to cricket games in England are sold to British-born white people, and 82% of those people are white males of the average age of 50. Now, the entire point of this competition, therefore, is not... to, to, to attract more people such as that if they want to go and watch some high quality exciting cricket they can go and watch England against India in the Test Series which will be running concurrently The idea behind this tournament is to attract a whole new set of fans and it's younger fans, it's it's ethnic minorities, it's people from cities and that's why the tournament's been redrawn not on county lines as the 18 first-class counties have historically played cricket in England. Instead, we have eight city-based teams and and that also is to to do with research. I think that some of the research the ECB did suggested that people are 2.5 times more likely to associate themselves with a city now than a county and and having my personal experience having gone to a state school first in London and then in Southampton is very much that cricket is not a sport that is followed by people my age and that people do not associate themselves with counties they associate themselves with cities and I think this is the first step to remedying that and to trying to bring people my age but also significantly younger into the game.
0: Henry can you explain to listeners why exactly it has to be that there are six balls in an over rather than ten?
6: What, what I mean? What is tradition for? I mean, if there always have been six balls in an over, haven't there have been eight? There were eight in Australia for a time, and eight in South Africa for a shorter time. I mean, why are the twelve inches in a foot? Why are the three feet in a yard? It's just, that, thats an identical question, isn't it? It's something we've all grown up with. So I'm not knocking this competition at all. I just don't think it is needed. I, I just feel that. It's so near to T20, I worry it might might split the audience for the two types of cricket because they are so very similar. I hear everything that's been said just now about it and i fine. I can't deal with statistics as Freddie can. Um, I'm not a statistic person, I don't have them at hand I'm sure he is right. And as I say, I wish it every success. And I'm—I'm—I mean, I'm far from trying to say it's not going to work. I'm even going along to the first man's game myself at Trent Bridge to to see what it is like, because I think it's, there's nothing worse than having, as I say, an old fart like me banging on saying it's not going to work when he hasn't been near it. And I'm certainly going to go to it. And I'm certainly going to go through it with an open mind, I promise you. But it seems to me that to jumble up four types of cricket in an English summer with a game, I don't know. And I'm not certain about this new audience, whether we're not trying to attract an audience that cricket really doesn't in fact need and is not going to hold these are all questions that are going to be answered over the next month or two but i think it's worth raising them now but I, as i say i the last thing i'm trying to do is not the competition on the head
0: And for you what, what would be the best outcome and the worst outcome from this new development in cricket
6: for me well i mean the worst outcome would be that it doesn't work and it doesn't make the money and it, 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 therefore, by association, you might say, it damages the other game. It might do that. I don't think it probably will. But whether it's got staying power, that's what I doubt. And how much wiser it would have been had we developed T20 along the franchise principle, um, principle which has worked so well in India and in Australia. And I think would have worked here had we been prepared to, to grip that nettle when it, when it first appeared, but we weren't. And as I say, I think we are playing catch-up. And I always think playing catch-up is a very dangerous game.
0: Freddie, just finally, it seems reading Michael's piece as though cricket seems to be one of those sports that is constantly evolving. Is this just the latest iteration and, and, and we should, should we really be that worried about it?
5: Yeah, well, no, I don't think we should be that worried about it. And yes, it is the, the latest iteration cricket has constantly evolved over its history. As as Henry said, he drew attention to the fact that the over has been eight balls long and then six balls. And the fact that it's gone to five, I'm, I'm glad to hear that he's not too bothered by that. And similarly, in 2003, when 2020 cricket was created, there was a lot of angst and worry then. But that has actually come to save the sport in many respects. And now counties come to rely on the T20 game as their source of financial staying power. And I think similarly, we may well see that the 100 serves a very similar purpose. I can understand why people will be worried. But I think really, you you need to almost calmly sit back and think the ECB have a lot of people who are paid a lot of money to make these decisions, and they've got a lot of information at their disposal. And I think whilst we should never not question the people making decisions, I think we have to sit back and think they probably do know what they're doing and look at the evidence. And I, and I think they do. And I think it will work. Uh, it might take some time. And this summer will be complex and difficult because of the challenge presented by COVID. But I think it will work. And I think it will be a force for good.
0: And just finally, the cartoon illustrating Michael's piece is a cartoon by our brilliant cartoonist, Michael Heath. And it says, it's just not cricket. Is this just something that people will always complain about, Henry, that it's just not cricket? Whatever cricket does, it's just not cricket.
6: We've talked for however long we have talked. We haven't mentioned the central pillar of the game, which is test cricket. If you took test cricket away from cricket, it would be like taking the banisters away from a very big famous staircase. It would crumble and the game, the standards of the game would fall appallingly. The standards of the game are are kept where they are by test cricket, which is why county championship cricket is so important because it's the only feeder game for test cricket. And I mean, county championship cricket is pressed more and more to the margins by what's happening with all the other forms of the game in that it's being played more right at the start of the season predominantly than right at the end and um, but as we saw the other day when india played new zealand in the test championship final we had a great game of cricket and the standard of that i watched on television every single ball and i didn't in fact i listened on one day to test match special and how good it was let us hope one of the Byproducts of this new hundred competition is that it does produce the money to keep Test cricket going. although well, they're in this country. Test cricket is still enormously popular. It's much more popular than anywhere else in the world. And it, and I think you will see when India play in August and September that it will be very much to full house crowds. And um, so I think Test cricket on its own is still a very viable entity. No one says that and stresses the importance of test cricket more than the Indian captain, Virat Kohli. And he says, he stressed that several times recently and and once very much within my hearing. I just hope that concentration on this very, rather more trivial, shorter form of the game is not going to damage uh, the central pillar of the game because without that, the standards would fall away appallingly.
5: And I just, just one very brief point on that. I think you, that, you know, if we're talking about the long-term viability of Test cricket. I think that in a way, some of the things that the 100 are seeking to do is attract a younger audience. Yes, Test cricket is very popular in England, but, but it is by and large amongst older white men. And I think the game has a lot to do to try and attract a younger, more diverse pe- set of people. And I think that's what the 100 will begin to do. And hopefully that will have benefits for Test cricket as well down the line.
0: Freddie and Henry, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything for the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. I've been Lara Prendergast, and I hope you have a brilliant weekend.